This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including eBooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome back to New Books in African American Studies, part of the New Books Network. I'm your host, James West, and today I'm joined by David Verrill, who is currently a faculty member at Metropolitan State University in Denver. And we're going to be talking about his new book, which has just been published by the University of North Carolina Press, The Scholar and the Struggle, Lawrence Reddick's Crusade for Black History and Black Power. And what David does in this book is offer a fascinating insight into the life of Reddick, who was one of the foremost African-American intellectuals of his generation. He's a figure whose career spans the period from the 1930s into the 1980s. And as David's book demonstrates, uh, beyond participating in in the black liberation struggle, Reddick played a key role in, in documenting and interpreting that struggle for black and white publics alike. Hi, Dave. How are you doing today? Hi, James. Uh, doing well. Good stuff. For listeners who, who aren't familiar, can you just lay out the basics? So who was Lawrence Reddick? Yeah, so he was this fascinating African-American intellectual who operated from the 1930s through the 1970s, especially. Um, and in that kind of half century of scholarly activism, um, he really helped us see the contours of the, the long black civil rights movement. Um, as well as laying bare the, the different roles that intellectuals could play within that struggle. And so very briefly, you know, from the 1930s, involved with the Black History Movement led by Carter Woodson, he got his PhD in history from the University of Chicago, and was engaged in combating kind of lost cause narratives within professional history. And he later became a librarian at the Schomburg Library at Atlanta University, which was part of the same sort of work compiling primary sources of Black people so that they could kind of tell their own story and historians can analyze them. But he also stands out as someone who was more of an activist. He wasn't just a scholar doing research. He befriended Kwame Nkrumah, the future president of Ghana, and Namdi Azikiwe, the future president of Nigeria. It was very much a part of this pan-African struggle for decolonization in Africa. He also was part of the Montgomery bus boycott and became a leader in the Southern struggle as a, a mentor to Martin Luther King, a, a board member of the Southern Christian Leadership Conference. And then finally in the 70s, he was part of this black campus movement where he challenged institutional racism on campuses like Temple, where he took up a tenured position and within professional history as well. So really a long life engaged in so many different types of struggles that I think he's makes a really fascinating case study. At uh, what point did you realize that this was was going to be a book project yeah so i you know i wrote my first book on allison davis a black scholar who did a lot of work in the 1920s 30s and 40s and so i became familiar with him a little bit through that and after the davis book i did a lot of work just kind of trying to familiarize myself with other black intellectuals of that generation and once i looked at reddick though he really struck out to me as someone who was doing that scholarly research type work, but then also I saw that he was part of SCLC. And so the more I kind of pulled the thread at him, the more I thought, wow, this guy's really interesting. And, and there was more there than I could have imagined, which ultimately made for that. This guy really deserves a whole book, given that there isn't that much about him in the literature either. And he sure had a lot to kind of contribute. And you mentioned your your first book on Alison Davis, which came out a few years ago, University of Chicago Press. So this is another biography project following quite closely on the heels of that project. Did you approach this in a, in a similar way or was it different? How did that first project about Alison Davis inform this book? 
No, it's a great question. And very much it was in dialogue with, with that project where this one came from. So Allison Davis was much more of a scholar and he did his work within anthropology and education doing research and often in kind of elite spaces. You know, he went to Williams College and Harvard and then was a pioneer becoming the first black intellectual to get a full-time position at um, the University of Chicago, a tenured position. And that became his kind of life, to challenge racism that way. But for Reddick, his life was very different. You know, he was he got his PhD at Chicago, but he chose to spend more of his time communicating with the black public, the mass black public, whether through his fraternity, the Phi Beta Sigma, or as a librarian reaching out to black Harlemites and others, or as an activist for SCLC and mentoring Martin Luther King, teaching at black colleges across the country. I was interested in that difference of the different trajectory his life took to make him uh, much more grounded in black institutions and to challenge racism in a more activist way and to kind of see how that worked. In terms of doing biography in general, you know, I'm not someone who wanted to necessarily, that's not how I started out my, my research. Um, my Allison Davis book was based on my dissertation and it started as a project focus much more on a couple of his key books and kind of look at how are these black anthropologists challenging the mainstream kind of white social science at the time. And so I, I focused on the books and the, the debates especially. But as I was turning it into a book, you know, I realized that when you start asking where do ideas come from, then you're necessarily sort of asking, well, who are these people doing this? Why were their ideas so progressive and far-seeing? And of course, for Davis, it was because he was a black scholar in a white world who was able to understand things about race that a lot of white scholars couldn't or just wouldn't take the time to do. And because so little was written about him, it became a, a biography. Ultimately, that seemed to be the most important thing to present this guy's whole life and career. And so for Reddick, I'd already kind of done that work. I knew what it was like to write a biography, but even so, I was first thinking about writing a book of a, a few different black intellectuals in different disciplines, playing off their interrelated lives. But then Reddick's story really gripped me as the most compelling, and it ultimately just spiraled into a whole book as I couldn't sort of cop picking at the thread of his fascinating life. And as, as part of this research, you do some, some really great archival digging. In terms of Reddick's papers specifically, can you say a bit more about your use of those, your access to those, because you mentioned that they're unprocessed. So was that a challenge to try and sort through some of that material? So his papers are about about 50 boxes worth, so a substantial amount of material. But yes, it was unprocessed, meaning that it hadn't been organized in a, a very easy way, even though, again, certain boxes held material on um, certain aspects of his life. And there was a very skeletal sort of finding aid. So it wasn't totally unprocessed. But now actually they've had a grant to process those papers for a few years. And I know they've been working on that. So it very well may be fully processed in the near future. But yeah, so there's about 50 boxes worth. And of course, less material early on in life, 1930s. But still, you know, what, what stands out is because Reddick was a historian, he was really a good record keeper, you know, and he, and he compiled his papers all along in a way. And so there was more there than you might suspect, even in the early period of his life. And then, of course, much more in the 1970s, 60s, 70s, 80s, when he was a notable figure. But yeah, there was really a lot to those papers. And maybe what's also most interesting, because he was a historian, right, these weren't just, everything wasn't directly about him, just his letters and notes, like, especially on King, right? He wrote the first biography on Martin Luther King. And so he has a whole sets of boxes which are just primary sources on King, newspaper clippings and other things related to him. And so it's actually a rich source for primary access into all sorts of Black history throughout his life. And were there other collections that were particularly useful in, in complementing Reddick's own archival papers and helping to, to build out your understanding of his work and activism? Yes. Yeah, so you know, any biography, um, you need some sources to try to flesh out his personality somewhat. And so I, I found that correspondence, especially with friends, um, where they're, 
or, you know, they're much more likely to be frank and open and you get a sense of where they really think about things beyond just, you know, what's published, right? Because that's very much crafted and tailored. You want to get what are their more uninhibited thoughts. And so luckily Reddick was, you know, prolific letter writer, had lots of friends. For one, St. Clair Drake, whose papers are also at the Schomburg Library, um, they were lifelong friends from the 1930s to the 1980s. So especially Drake's papers had correspondence between the two that was incredibly rich that I reference a lot in my book. Also, Horace Mann Bond and W.E.B. Du Bois, both of whom have papers at UMass, Amherst. Many of them have been digitized as well. And so you can freely access much of that correspondence, as well as a little bit of correspondence with uh, Richard Wright, who has papers at Yale, Lorenzo Green, um, whose papers are in the National Archives. Through those, especially those collections, those correspondences, I really was able to get a full sense of Reddick, what he thought about things. And then I was able to put that in touch with the Black Press. I covered Reddick extensively, had tons of information about him. And of course, Reddick's many other uh, publications and really allowed Reddick's full personality to come out in a way that for my Davis book, it just wasn't quite possible um, because his papers were much more threadbare and I didn't have that much correspondence. And that was kind of a frustrating uh, thing there. But for Reddick, it's a very, uh, very different story. Yeah, that was definitely one of the things I appreciate most about your book, your ability to put these different voices or, or um, archival perspectives in conversation. And particularly when looking at these various fallouts that Reddick has, and, and you're looking at kind of archival material, like institutional archival material from Fisk or Atlanta University. And then you get a, a somewhat different perspective from more personal correspondence and uh, Reddick's, as you say, he's he's not shy about expressing his, uh, his opinions and, and disagreements with uh, all manner of different institutions and people in, in quite colourful ways. Yes. I think just before we get into the book, you talk quite frankly in, in the acknowledgements about the, the challenges of, of writing this type of book um, as, a, as an adjunct scholar. So are there particular people who helped you um, in that process? And I think it would be really useful for listeners just to get a sense of practically how you went about developing this really dense and, and rich biography with uh, that kind of uncertainty or precarity going on at the same time. Sure. So on the one hand, I think almost anyone who gets a PhD has some experience living at sort of near the poverty line with very little money, spending years to try to do this research quietly, turn into a book um, with very little money and resources, especially if you don't go to an Ivy League school and aren't lavish with other types of funding, as I certainly wasn't uh, as a graduate at the University of Colorado. And in this case, I had a postdoctoral fellowship, a one year at Case Western, which gave me a little bit of time and money to begin this project. And so I did what I could, living as cheaply as I could to go to these different archives on very limited means. And I also uh, won a four-week short-term fellowship from the Schomburg to look at Reddick's papers. But beyond that, I really didn't have a lot of institutional support for this. Um, it was a matter of, I did a visiting position at the University of Mississippi for a year, where I was able to use their resources through that library to, to access some of these Black historical newspapers. Because that's the other thing, right? If you're not part of an institution, you don't even have access to libraries and resources. Like I couldn't even read my own articles and reviews without that access. And so it was often a challenge. And then finally, of course, my wife, uh, Michelle Penn, she supported me for the full year in which I, it took me to write this manuscript up after I had done all the research, organized it. And that's ultimately what I think it comes down to from a lot of adjunct people out there who their institutions don't support them. So you need a family member to rely on. You got to be very crafty and also have some luck and maybe a little stupidity. I don't know if to, to go through with another scholarly book, which of course just costs you money. It was a real challenge, but I will say the material was very exciting and really rich for me, allowed me to grow intellectually, but I was always at the back of my mind, you know, why should I do it? And I feel like that's maybe one of the bigger challenges for all this kind of contingency among faculty today is that it it really makes you question the value of or the ability for you to even do that work. So it was a struggle, but that's part of what it looked like for me. 
you open the first chapter and, and you mentioned you know Reddick was was born and spent um, his early life in, in Jacksonville in Florida but it was at Fisk University where he he really comes of age so why was Fisk so important for Reddick's personal intellectual development and were there particular individuals there who helped to shape his understanding of black activism yeah Fisk was this really amazing black college. Some people called it the Black Harvard during the 1930s because it was such an incredible school with both a liberal arts focus, but also people who were leading scholars at the time. And this was part of the, one of the benefits of backward benefits of segregation was it concentrated the talents of these amazing black scholars in these black colleges across the country. And so you have Charles Johnson, Horace Mann Bond, um, as two of his most influential um, scholars and mentors at Fisk. W.E.B. Du Bois was a, an alum, and he would make frequent visits there. Arthur Schomburg as well. And really just a who's who of the Black intelligentsia um, would visit Fisk. So it was this incredibly compelling atmosphere. And so we learned a lot from his mentors there. But also just he became an advocate and enthusiast for Black colleges all his life, in fact. And you know, within that atmosphere of segregation, there was real solidarity uh, among the other folks there. And it made him, it gave him a sense of comfort and mentorship that, you know, he often wouldn't get other places. Like when he got his PhD at the University of Chicago, it was a much more hostile environment for African-Americans. But having been grounded at Fisk, getting both his undergraduate degree and graduating as valedictorian, but then also his master's degree in education, it really set the contours for his entire career in many ways. And I guess the other, one other part to that is that he was schooled by this Black history movement. He got to know Carter Woodson some during this time, and he started to learn Black history through, through Woodson especially in this movement. And so when he came to the University of Chicago, he was already a sort of really advanced scholar in ways that would challenge even his own mentors. And I know that gets more into chapter two, though. Yeah, it was interesting. So in the second chapter, you, you map out Reddick's experiences. So on the one hand, he's working at Dillard University, historically black college in New Orleans, a good part of the 1930s. But then also he begins his doctoral work at the University of Chicago. How does Reddick navigate these two quite different academic spaces? Yeah, it, it's it's humbling to look at the environment in which these guys were working. At Dillard University, he worked alongside Allison Davis, who was actually there also in the late 1930s. And these guys were often teaching four or five classes a semester, had all these administrative obligations, and they're doing this graduate work, sometimes, you know, just through the summer, sometimes through correspondence. Reddick was able to get fellowships to support full-time study at Chicago. But to graduate and get the PhD as fast as Reddick did by 1939 was quite a feat. But as you suggest, it was also a feat just to navigate these totally different worlds. Uh, but again, I think they were ultimately enriched and supported by these black colleges, whether it was first at Fisk where he studied, then at Dillard where he worked with Horace Mann Bond was also there at Dillard. You know, these guys... A lot of them, those figures had studied at the University of Chicago themselves, and they knew a bit how the system worked. So they knew how to prepare Reddick and others to study in those spaces, um, how to approach their advisors, what to do. And so they weren't doing this alone. And that's a key part um, of this story. These intellectuals supported one another and allowed them to understand that they were good enough, despite what some of the scholarship would write about Black people or how their white mentors might treat them, they got confidence from that support. And so I can get into a bit more of kind of his clashes with his advisor at Chicago too, if, if you'd like. Yeah, what's the situation at, at University of Chicago and, and what kind of battles does Reddick wage, particularly against white faculty? So Reddick... So he's someone who did have the confidence as I was speaking to before, but, you know, he also knew the righteousness of his cause that he was, especially his advisor who he was paired with, Avery Craven. This guy was writing kind of lost cause histories of the Civil War and the period leading up to it. And so Reddick knew that this was 
BS largely. And he wasn't really afraid to kind of speak that out. And so it led to some clashes in a way that many other black scholars just would have been hesitant to see that as counterproductive or it's not going to work. Reddick kind of was more direct and he's called aggressive by his own mentor, which is really threatening to Reddick's career. You know, once you start messing with these white power brokers and they start writing bad letters of recommendation for you, which Craven did for Reddick, it jeopardized your ability to get fellowships and to study. But Reddick had the support still of Woodson and others and black colleges. And so he approached that in a more direct way. And had some various clashes over his dissertation topic. He first wanted to write a, a study of these white historians themselves and, and kind of look into their own racial past to explain why are they writing these lost cause narratives and how flawed they were. You know, that didn't end up being what he, his dissertation was on. But he was, yeah, he was challenging the system in a way that was really quite remarkable for that period of time, I guess, in, in all sorts of ways. But then, you know, it is important to acknowledge that these aren't just conflicts happening across the color line. And, and you talk a little bit about his departure from, from Dillard University. And there's a suggestion that it's, it's possibly linked to, to his role in, in local protests. Um, can you say a bit more about that? Yeah, um, that was a frustrating part for me was to not be able to find sources that could really flesh out the nature of that dismissal. For, for his colleague, St. Clair Drake, who also worked there, and he was dismissed for his support of local protests, which, again, these administrators at Dillard, not that they're necessarily against protests, right, but they didn't want to jeopardize the precarious funding from white philanthropies that they needed for their institutions to function. And participating in civil rights protests outside of the job led some of them to fear that that money would be jeopardized. And so Drake was dismissed for that. And Reddick, I think that's likely the case for him as well. I know we know that he participated in some remarkable protests in the 1930s down in New Orleans. And so certainly that would have something to do, I think, with his ultimate dismissal or not being rehired there after uh, 1938. And so, yeah, definitely clashes as all these competing interests and these people tried to navigate doing their own civil rights activism with administrators at colleges who had different objectives they had to weigh. Um, yeah, all sorts of inter- and intra-racial issues there. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory... Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Uh, so Reddick manages to land on his feet and he, he gets a job at the Schomburg branch of New York Public Library. What's his role at the Schomburg and how does he become part of this vibrant black intellectual culture in New York? The Schomburg branch of the New York Public Library, um, you know, that Harlem used to be peopled more by uh, Jewish immigrants, but by World War I and after with the Great Migration, it became predominantly African-American as we had come to think of it later. And of course, the site of the Harlem Renaissance becomes the center for black culture. And so this position at the Schomburg from 1939 to 1948 was really a remarkable one for him. He took over Arthur Schomburg himself, who had just passed away. He renamed it actually the Schomburg Collection um, in his honor. Reddick's the one who did that as the second curator here. And of course, Schomburg is important because he had all these incredible primary sources from across the African diaspora and donated them to this branch. The Schomburg Library is a center for, to this day, one of the most important centers for research on the Black experience across the world. And so Reddick is now overseeing that collection, growing that collection. He's also has this prominent post in Black Harlem, the center of the African diaspora in many ways. And all this is occurring during World War II, right, as World War II breaks out, which upends much of the colonial order of the world and precipitates the beginning of African decolonization. Um, and so he's really at the center of, of so much of the Black world at this time, certainly the African-American one. 
And so he continues doing um, work he'd done before, which was gathering primary sources of Black people. In the 1930s, he gathered the testimony of former slaves, and he actually was part of this push by Black figures to make the federal government collect those resources as well through the WPA famous slave narratives. Well, Reddick was one of the the first person maybe to get federal funding to collect these testimonies himself. And at the Schomburg, he's doing this during World War II. So he has this big effort to collect the testimony of African-American soldiers fighting in the war. What was their experience? What did they see? What did they feel? Um, And to this day, the Schomburg now has these incredible resources on that subject, thanks to Reddick. I think it's one of the meta narratives of my whole book is what a radical investment these figures made in the future, right? He wasn't getting famous by collecting those sources, but he was laying the framework that which scholars could reinterpret the past to make better sense of the present. And one other way he did that at, at the time at the Schomburg was he led the effort to find and microfilm as many black newspapers as he could during the 19th and into the 20th century. That effort really transform the study of African-American history because no source was better at providing Black perspectives on the world written by Black people, chronicling their lives and histories. And so Reddick's one of those figures who made that possible. I'm someone who relies on that work. Now it's digitized and so much easier for us to access. But again, that doesn't exist without people like Reddick um, uh, laying the groundwork. And the only other part of the Schomburg, as I said, he was engaged in all sorts of broad activism, working with the boys, setting up colonial conferences in New York City, getting to know Kwame Nkrumah better, collaborating with many of these African students who came and studied in the United States before becoming often major figures back in Africa. And so he had a really dynamic and important career there, the Schomburg, for those nine years. And then towards the end of the 1940s, a combination of different factors mean that Reddick decides to leave New York and, and leave the Schomburg and take up a, a new challenge as the chief librarian at Atlanta University. What types of reasons um, did you find for Reddick making that decision? Yes, yeah, so I, I think ultimately that one was precipitated by him wanting to go to Atlanta University, start anew. I think in lots of ways he did have a kind of wanderlust And he wanted to try out new types of work and new places. And the Schomburg Library at the time was deeply underfunded. And so he wasn't getting paid that much to do this work. And I think Atlanta University had a lot of appeal. This was in many ways the kind of this Atlanta University Consortium, which of course has, you know, Morehouse College, Atlanta University, and, and a number of other leading black colleges. This was a space that was really enticing too. And so he was able to take over the head librarianship as well as be a professor of history and teach some classes in history. And this was a time where, you know, lots of major black figures were there that he worked alongside from, you know, Benjamin Mays and Du Bois had been there in in the forties as well. And so a lot of, I think, appealed to him. So he chose to go to Atlanta but he wouldn't go quietly as he never does. Before he left New York, he made a big issue of the lack of funding and support for the Schomburg, which has this international research library deserved lots more funding. And so he gets Bond and Du Bois and others to write into the New York Times and other places to protest um, this lack of support for the, the Schomburg, even as he's, he's on his way out. And his period in Atlanta during the late 40s and early 50s, You do a really good job of setting this against the broader context of um, emerging Cold War politics, anti-communism, you know, the links between the Red Scare and black activism. How does that shape Reddick's role at Atlanta University and and ultimately contribute to his fractious departure? Yeah, so, you know, Reddick was never a communist or any kind of strident leftist. He was kind of free thinking, left liberal in many ways. But that meant he associated with Marxists and communists as well, especially in New York City, a center for some of this. Organizations like the National Negro Congress, um, you know, would visit and attend that. And so those became later directly some, you know, pro-segregationists in the South would use merely the, his association in some of those with some of those people um, to try to tar him as this communist, which is, of course, became the playbook for many white Southerners who were resisting civil rights in the South. 
in that sense, his life would be affected in, in some ways by that when he when he went south and became a kind of local civil rights figure. But yeah, just the Cold War really muted a lot of these people, um, their voices. Uh, not, to even talk about class during that era made it possible for you to be slandered as a communist and therefore undermined and dismissed as people like the boys were harassed for that. But Reddick continued to speak out for peace, um, refused to demonize the Soviet Union despite recognizing its many problems. He condemned American militarism at the time. And so he continued to speak out in this era. But maybe one of the larger points about this that other historians have made is how it's this Red Scare, the silencing of leftists, which really kind of devastated the movement in many ways, where people like the boys um, became marginalized in a way. And so the next generation of activists, such as Martin Luther King and others, maybe had less direct access to some of those figures and, and mentorship. But they're still there, often in more quiet ways. And Reddick was one of those. He didn't go away or really become more conservative um, in that era. He continued to fight for the cause as best he could and cultivate relationships. And so I think that by putting Reddick back in the story, we get a sense of that intergenerational mentorship, which continued even as it was often silenced and these people were harassed by the, the U.S. federal government. So Reddick, his uncompromising attitude, his engagement with local activists leads to this breakdown of his relationship with Atlanta University President Rufus Clement, who ultimately serves Reddick his notice of, of termination. And then if it's serendipitous or if it's fate, Reddick finds himself in Montgomery, Alabama, just on the on the precipice of the Montgomery bus boycotts. And this also throws him into the sphere of Dr. Martin Luther King. King's relationship with Reddick is arguably one of, if, if not the most important relationships to emerge through this book. How does that relationship develop during this this early period in, in the mid to late 1950s? Yeah, so Reddick was, well, first of all, Alabama State College, this black college right in Montgomery, the, the seat of the capital of, of Alabama. It was a center of that struggle all along. Joanne Robinson and, and many other figures were tied with this institution. And so Reddick, by becoming the chair of the history department, in 1955, he was immediately one of the most important, visible Black intellectuals of the period. So very logically, he became caught up in this massive boycott, which began only a few months after he started at, um, at the university. And so he's providing mentorship. He's becomes the official historian of the Montgomery Improvement Association, um, which led the boycott. He's documenting what's going on. He's writing articles about it. And of course, Martin Luther King Jr., who had taken up a pastorship just a year before that, who becomes this leading figure of the movement. Reddick becomes intimately close with him, with Ralph Abernathy, who's also a pastor in town. Edie Nixon as well, head of NAACP down there. And so it's very organic that Reddick would become close with King at that time. And as King became such a national and then international sensation. And Reddick, again, this is where it was important is that he was this mentor, right? He was a generation older than King who had been schooled by the black protest tradition in the 1930s and 40s. He was a historian who knew black history, could give King a larger sense of the arc of the black experience. King very much relied upon Reddick, his advice and, and counsel during these years. And so as a result of that, as King becomes a, a major figure, Reddick writes the first biography of Martin Luther King in consultation with King and Coretta and the family called A Crusader Without Violence. It was just republished, in fact, just about a year ago. The first biography of, of King, which really puts King's life in the context of his larger education and Black Atlanta and other spaces. So he writes that book um, in conjunction with King. He travels to India uh, with King in this highly uh, touted trip. And he becomes the lone kind of secular figure uh, of the Southern Christian Leadership Conference, which of course was the activist organization started in the South after the Montgomery Gus boycott was so successful. 
And so Reddick finds himself then in the midst of what becomes the vanguard civil rights organization in the country for the next several years and the mentor to the most visible figure in that struggle. This isn't a relationship devoid of, of conflict like like so many of, of the relationships that you document throughout this book. And you have some really great comments um, from Reddick uh, complaining about King that maybe give a really interesting insight into that relationship and, and how they uh, their egos sometimes clashed. Yeah, definitely. Um, what I like about seeing this history through Reddick's eyes is that it challenges some of the you know, Martin Luther King has taken on this role as just this larger than life figure in so many ways that it's almost easy to forget, even as a historian, you know, that, you know, when he, during the Montgomery bus boycott, he's in his mid twenties. King is very young. He's trying to process all that's going on. His, his leadership role is global stature immediately thereafter. So that was a very difficult situation. And Reddick often didn't make it easy because he was such a headstrong figure, like many of the people around King were, that, yeah, that, you know, there wasn't much, a lot of open conflict between those two as with some figures. But but you're right, you know, as, as King is, or as Reddick is trying to mentor King, King was also trying to do his own thing and retain his own independence and reject the counsel of Reddick and others at times and find his own path. You know, and at times Reddick could be kind of harsh about that, calling King is sort of, you know, he's he's young and immature and he's you know not doing what I recommend and I'm, you know, I know better. So there was a little bit of, of that for sure, um, even though it never got so acrimonious between those two as with others. But, you know, you can also sympathize with King as trying to navigate this environment, which is incredibly difficult, uh, especially with someone like Reddick, who at times could take your disagreement with his approach as a personal affront to him. And it wouldn't have been easy to, to deal with on a day-to-day basis, for sure. So into the 1960s then, um, what kind of role is Reddick continuing to play in the development and, and evolution of SCLC? Yeah, so Reddick, um, in 1960, after he gets fired because the Alabama uh, state governor, John Patterson, had him fired for his civil rights activities and dismissed in a kind of acrimonious process. So he takes a job up in Baltimore at a black college, Coppin State. And so now SCLC and King are centered in Atlanta, and he's living principally in Baltimore, but of course, commuting back and forth to Atlanta quite a bit. So they're not seeing each other on a day-to-day basis the way they had been. But the great thing for a historian, for us, is that this meant that Reddick wrote up through letters much of his advice and counsel to King which right now the King Center in Atlanta houses most of those letters, which are just amazing primary sources. I recommend to anyone to go see where he's giving direct counsel and advice and strategizing of what King should be doing. How should he be, um, what should be emphasizing in speeches? He's part of the cohort around King that are helping him write his speeches to frame things in certain ways and to approach the movement in certain ways. And so that is what I emphasize in, in that sixth chapter is a, a lot of that work that he's doing just to, to guide and counsel King, which again, focusing on King himself and his charismatic speeches, I think it's important to look at all these figures around him. You can't you know, take on that role without having a lot of people help guide you, help write your speeches. And I think it's this big collaborative process that really is what makes activism what it is. And so Reddick's work here um, is a testament to that sort of process. He's, he's helping advise King through every major struggle and battle we're often familiar with, with the Southern Christian Leadership Conference, the big protests in places all over the country. And of course, which result in the Transformative Civil Rights Act and Voting Rights Act of 64 and 65. Um, and so Reddick was an important part of that if one that's not well-known and hasn't been talked about as much among some of these uh, King scholars. You know, like a lot of black intellectuals during this period, you, you describe them as moving tactically across a fluid ideological spectrum, and that ranges from racial integration to black nationalism, depending upon the circumstance. This is something that comes under increasing scrutiny um, following the, the emergence of black power so Reddick is, on the one hand, someone who is, is fairly sympathetic to the underlying 
um, ideas which frame black power as a, as a concept, um, but also he kind of tactically committed to SCLC and to this integrationist agenda. How do those two, not necessarily oppositional currents, but how do those different strands or, or approaches to black activism reconcile themselves through through Reddick's work? Yes, yeah, so obviously Reddick, as a, a board member of SCLC, a mentor to King, he's very much associated with that phase of the struggle. But what I would say is that he's not doing that because he, he believes that's the one true and best way necessarily to advance Black freedom. Or, or maybe if it is a great way, it's not the only way. You need multiple fronts. So he's someone who would see the different um struggles of the black power activists as useful, just as he saw communists in the United States as useful. They weren't the central enemy. They raised issues of class disparities. They often allied with the black civil rights movement when other people wouldn't. And so, of course, he saw personally through his own life, he had this amazing position to have the ear of King and to be guiding the civil rights organization. So as he's doing that, he's going to say, okay, the success of SCLC depends upon the success of King in many ways. And so I'm going to give the best advice I can to make this organization accomplish the most change that it can, which was often through allying with white liberals to get access to political power in the U.S. to make concrete legislative changes within the United States through protests and all this stuff. So he did his work to make that as successful as possible. But even as he was doing that, that was never his whole life. He was also, um, even at the time, challenging racism within American publishing, um, challenging racism within the university systems, even as he was mentoring King and SCLC. And so after King gets uh, murdered um, in 1968 and Reddick's affiliation with SCLC is less prominent in the 70s, um, he moves to Temple University and then you can see how this more black nationalist phrase, this more strident rhetoric, challenged institutional racism, that comes to the fore, but it was in no way something that he didn't care about before. And so you can see all those pieces working together within this figure. Can you give listeners a few more specific examples of how that more um, strident rhetorical approach and uh, more open criticism of, of white institutions comes through following his move to Temple University? Yeah. And so again, Reddick up to that point had spent most of his life in black colleges, shoring them up, wanting to make them strong, vibrant institutions, even once segregation gets broken down. Right? He wasn't one who just said, okay, black people can now go to white colleges. They should just run there as fast as they can. Right? He was saying, no, let's make these black colleges as strong as possible and make white people you know, be encouraged to go there, desegregation through that way. However, with the black campus movement um, in the late 1960s to challenge um, racism on, on university campuses, to build black and African-American studies uh, departments and programs, I think Reddick saw that as an opportunity when he got offered a tenured position at Temple University in, in Philadelphia. And so he takes that job and, you know, he brings his protest strategy to the university. Um, which made him quite controversial. But he would openly make speeches on campus, say this university library is woefully insufficient. It, pr it prides itself on being this leader in certain subject areas of history and whatever else. And yet you go in its libraries and you see shelves that have very little African-American history in them or, or studies of Black people across the world in them. So he'd be a strident critic of other faculty members of the university as a whole all the time. And that, so that definitely created some real tension. He became a uh, very few white scholars' favorite uh, faculty member at that time. Of course, it wasn't just a temple. This guy was a, Reddick was a, a national figure within uh, the history movement. And so he also became a strident critic of where black history went in the 1960s and 70s you finally have more white people writing uh, black history wanting to taking an interest in the wake of the civil rights movement um, but reddick saw the figures who came to lead the field at prominent institutions harvard yale 
A lot of these were white scholars who years before knew nothing about black history, had ignored all the generations of work by black scholars. And yet now they were sitting on the most powerful positions in universities um, to preside over the study of black people. You flag up this this particular article that um, Reddick publishes in the seventies. I think is a really overlooked but really prescient article, and it's, it's about what what Reddick describes as the the corporate takeover of Black history. Um, can you can you speak a little bit more about that? Yes. Yeah, so that was some of what I was just talking about there in terms of who is presiding over the study of Black people. And again, history is different from other disciplines here because ever since Carter Woodson formed the Association for the Study of Negro Life and History um, and the Journal of Negro History before World War I, there was this institutional study of Black people, but it was controlled by Black scholars, and largely because white people weren't interested and it didn't think people had a Black or Black people had a history. So that goes on for, you know, decades. And, you know, it was problematic in the sense that they were underfunded and often stigmatized and white scholars didn't care much, but at least they controlled it. And so they rooted out some of the overt racism and bias that framed the study of black people and other disciplines. But now in the 1960s and 70s, when you have white scholars at Harvard and Yale and Berkeley starting to become interested and control it, that means that now the foundations, which are always giving more money to those types of figures, are increasingly white scholars. And they have the, the power funding. They have the connections with publishers at trade presses, right, to begin to get this huge amount of resources to now study Black people, only they're doing it often with pretty strong ignorance of the black scholars who are already the experts out there, those people weren't being empowered. People like Reddick to become uh, you know, a, a professor at some of these places. It was these other figures. And so it became very important for Reddick then to challenge that broad structure of inequity at the very moment that black history seemed to be falling more under the purview of these white scholars. So that article and a lot of the work he was doing was just laying that out as clearly as possible institutional racism in these spaces as he as he saw it given reddick's dissatisfaction of the shortcomings of, of predominantly white universities it's, it's maybe fitting then that he returns to dillard university in, in the late 1970s and this is where you you end the book really talking about his return to dillard you describe it as almost a homecoming you know what's the significance do you think of of that return and what does that say about both reddick's ultimately his loyalties in terms of lying with black institutions and and the type of connections and collaborations that are so important for um helping his activism and his work develop over over the decades i do think it's symbolic and representative of much of reddick um and of course decisions are also you know, practical ones. And I think Reddick was in many ways ready to retire from some of his previous work. And his wife had family in New Orleans. There was a lot of things pushing them there and making that position appealing to return to Dillard. Um, but you're right that I kind of closed that out in the conclusion by making that the entry because he has spent his whole life investing in black institutions and black colleges was one of the biggest ones he did. Um, and so to return to Dillard, you know, not a renowned black college by any means. And he spends his last kind of years working with, you know, more ordinary black students shuffling in and out of Dillard. And that becomes his priority along with other sort of research projects he was doing. And I do think that that speaks volumes. He also writes more about black colleges that era at a time when, these black colleges were in crisis. Well, Reddick was part of this push saying, no, these institutions have been essential and they need to continue to be. There aren't many spaces where black people can feel comfortable, have an atmosphere of solidarity um, and support the black community, which then supports the larger American one in so many ways. And so I, I do think it's very fitting that he chose to close out his career in that particular environment. 
just for listeners who might be interested in in what comes next for you do you do you have any um ideas about you work that you're currently researching or ideas for maybe um the next the next project that you might want to work towards sure and as we talked about before with some of the the challenges of adjuncting and kind of contingent academic life it makes it hard to find the resources and motivation to jump right into another project whereas if i had some kind of tenure track position you know, I'd be institutionally encouraged to continue that work, you know. So in some ways, I, I don't have a, a project or I don't have the means to easily do that. However, there are various projects that I'm interested in and looking into further. As people can see from the Davis and Reddick books, I'm especially interested in these black scholars who came of age in the interwar America, um, kind of Jim Crow America, who've often been not fully appreciated for the, the work they did to lay the foundations for much of the struggle. And I'm a, a native of the Chicago area, so I've, I've looked especially at some of these figures who studied at the University of Chicago in these years, both Davis and Reddick did. But so did a host of other figures. St. Clair Drake is another one that I'm very interested in. I know some other people are doing work on him, but he's the kind of figure who deserves a couple good biographies. So I, I, you know, I haven't ruled out trying to do a serious study of him, but I'm actually kind of thinking about a project that frames a lot of those figures together across multiple disciplines, um, history, sociology, anthropology, who, who studied at Chicago, kind of called the Black Chicago School, and to look at the very different trajectories some of these figures took, but also tie together some of these themes that I found with these individual biographies. So uh, that's something that I would be interested in pursuing further, um, even though I haven't jumped into that too much just yet. Yeah, that sounds fantastic. And I, I think it's really important to talk openly about the impact of adjunctification and of the reality of, of that for so many scholars and scholars such as yourself who are doing really great, innovative, important work um, on figures like Reddick and on Davis and on other scholars. It is important to acknowledge the the challenges in doing that work, but also to to celebrate um, the work that is able to be accomplished and um, the contributions that this type of work um, bring to the field. But yeah, Dave, I really appreciate you talking with me today. Yeah, no, thanks, thanks, James. That was, it's been a real real pleasure.